My name is Detective Jeremiah Skinflick, and I speak to you from the grave. It was late October when I arrived in Romania at the behest of my employer. I was seeking the residence of one Dr. William Olfman, who was rumoured to be in possession of a weapon of such evil significance that, well, it simply could not be ignored by a vacationing Englishman with no local jurisdiction. My journey across darkest Europe was uneventful. Thankfully, I was alone in my horse and cart. Therefore, I had the requisite solitude to indulge in a what It was when I reached the outskirts of the Vale that events took a nefarious turn. My transport struck a tree and became instantly fingered beyond repair. Frankly, I was surprised I'd made it so far through the coarse terrain, considering I had no driver. So I ventured on foot, sometimes both, toward the lights of a nearby town called Steeple Bumstead, a name more suited to the outskirts of Saffron Walden, one would think, but now a beacon in the heart of the Transylvanian hills. En route, I had to wade across a terrible roaring river. It was indeed the world's worst stream, which I now know to be named the River Rakuten. Upon arrival in Steeple Bumstead, I went straight to the tavern, the startled goose. The barkeep was a leering man named Crispin Spinestroker. Nothing much happens around here, he told me, except the occasional Steven Seagal movie being filmed on the neighbouring industrial estate. Stephen himself frequents this very tavern, in fact, spending deep his bountiful tax savings. I'm looking for the castle owned by Dr. William Olfman, I explained with great urgency, after five hours of drinking and idle small talk. Ah, uttered Spinestroker, you'll be looking for Castle Regioni. Regioni, I snorted, and once I put away my cocaine, I continued. That doesn't sound very Romanian. Quibble not, young sir, the barkeep implored. Follow the road west and you'll come to a mountain. You must climb a cliff. The locals call it Richard. Atop, there be Castle Regioni, and there be Dr. W. Olfman. What Olfman, I repeated clamouring for the blindingly obvious. Were old man. But I wasn't making the connection. Spinestroker frowned at me like I was thicker than Peter Mullen's accent. He said nothing more but simply pointed at the full moon. Once we'd finished looking at the now-defunct distribution company incepted by Charles Band, he pointed at the actual full moon in the sky. Baffled, I left and headed west into the night. Before long, I came upon the mountain. Then I zipped up my trousers and began climbing. Halfway up, I stopped on an outcropping to rest. Here was a handsome bird of starkest black and white, a magpie, who had a tiny guitar across his breast, on which he played the popular Cliff Richard hit single, Saviour's Day. He sang with surprising accuracy. Before I could request mistletoe and wine, he fluttered into the night sky. Bemused, I climbed yet further, and soon I stood before the entrance to Castle Regioni, the door swung back with a sound that was creakier than the script for the haunting in Connecticut. I stepped inside. The foyer was candle-lit, and standing there was the hissute Dr. W. Olfman. More Tom Selleck than werewolf, but surely waiting to turn. Castle Regioni? I asked shakily. Detective Skinflick, I presume, Olfman growled. Then he said forebodingly, you are too late. He summoned me into the drawing room. Once we finished sketching each other, he summoned me into the study. My arithmetic education complete, he summoned me into the lounge, and this went on for several hours until we finally entered a large gallery. In the centre of the gallery was a plinth, upon which an object glowed with a brilliant and terrible light. The evil Olfman saw my gaze and said, Yes, 
as if that single word clarified anything whatsoever, but then I saw it. It emerged from the Bay of Evil, Altman said of the dreadful object, also known as the Evil Bay, also known as eBay, I gasped. He went on, it has the power to destroy all who gaze upon it. Speak its name, detective. And I did, as if to purge my soul of the corruption that had befouled it in its presence. Interstellar Civil War, directed by Albert Pym. I think you'll find, Orphan sneered, that its full title is Interstellar Civil War, colon, Shadows of the Empire, directed by Albert Pym. He cackled and intoned, With this weapon I will blind the eyes of a billion children. My head sank. Of course. I imagined all copies of this malignant anti-cinematic travesty had been expunged from the world. But the magpie, the musical magpie I met on Cliff Richard. You ordered the last remaining copy of Interstellar Civil War, colon, Shadows of the Empire by Albert Pion from the Music Magpie storefront on eBay. Indeed, grinned Olfman, baring his increasingly elongated teeth. He was definitely on the turn. Except you forgot one thing, I said smugly, checking the back of the DVD. Yes, this is a North American DVD, which cannot be played on European DVD players. This weapon is powerless. Wordlessly, Dr. Olfman approached a cabinet and pressed a button. The doors slid back with a hum to reveal a 22-inch Bush CRT TV with built-in DVD player. Incorrect, he said. He picked up a one-for-all remote control and pressed play. As thunder shook the very air, the DVD played successfully and its dire contents appeared on the ill-defined 22-inch screen. And then it hit me. Once I'd recovered from the shock of being struck by an inanimate television, I came to a realisation. I was not standing in the castle Regioni, but in the castle Region 1. Of course, regional distribution rights management was no barrier to the wolfman unleashing his terror upon the world. As the credits burst into life and the relentless shoddy green screen served only as a distraction from the woeful, hyperverbose, po-faced script, I felt my eyes burn and my mind melt into paste. The last thing I saw before my death was the wolfman, now fully transformed, howling in triumph at the moon, and also source code. Dear reader, the world will soon know the manner of its demise. Interstellar Civil War, colon, Shadows of the Empire, directed by Albert Pion. The end. Okay, so uh, that was a, a chilling tale for this Halloween, which is now more than a week behind us. Uh, <laughs> this is KK45, and this is Rupert, and it's just me today. I'm just going to be doing a two-hour monologue on my own no brit not, not about films either just a no. two-hour monologue just a, my life just, just a general thoughts yeah. it'll be like it'll be like the wonder years narration but for two hours <laughs> there's a but what would your soundtrack be if you were doing a like the the, the rupert wonder years you would obviously wouldn't have um what was his name what would you do if i i forgot his name now Oh, it doesn't matter. But yeah, would, what would your theme tune be if you were like, oh, when I was mid nineties rock, I'm sure. Maybe I, was, I get Randy Newman in. <laughs> I would do like a jaunty piano piece. <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, I, that 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 story was amazing. It's the best six minutes and fifty two seconds well, of my life. Absolutely. <laughs> um, narrated from history textbooks. Yes. Uh, from Tron narrated Tron. from a slightly dubious diary. <laughs> like a, a diary written from a man who's dead, but written in the past. Yeah. Um, so uh, as is uh, yeah KK forty five, and as is customary, we've got a, a Halloween the Halloween story to kick us off. Um, Rupert and I, have, there's been a bit of a delay through illness and busyness. So we've both probably got 70 or 80 films between us. So that's astonishing. we're going to see what we can, what we can rustle up. But um, yeah, I can, unless you particularly, well, what, what's your theme actually, Rupert? Have you got a theme for this? There is a theme for this. It's okay. another series of horror movies. And this time it is Chucky. I I have seen a couple of these films very sporadically throughout the years. Um, I think I remember watching possibly the first or second one a very long time ago. And then I did watch the recent remake about four or three, four years ago. So I'm obviously familiar with it. Um, Yeah. Well, I've never seen, I've only ever seen the first one. So... um, I was quite intrigued by this and I wasn't expecting much, but I think in the end, I'm a bit of a fan actually. So it's quite a pleasant okay. surprise ultimately. I mean, in a way that, you know, watching all the Halloween films didn't really make me a Halloween fan. It just oh. made me think, uh, what was the point in those 30 intervening years? Uh, but with this, it was, it's up and down, but there's some real genuine ups along the way. Is it up and down like a manic depressive on a trampoline, Rupert? Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so who who gets the honour of going first? Well, maybe we should do the Arkham Star first. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've got any uh, any entries for this one. Uh, do you know? I I, ha- I do. Ha- I'm so glad you said that because I'm the worst co-host in the universe. But yeah, I do have I do have some audience entries for the yeah. Arkham Star. Um. Uh, one audio and one uh, written. So I'll do the I'll do the written one first because the audio one uh, from Utah Smith. He, yeah. The entry uh, he he said to me, "Is this acceptable?" And I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm going to play it and then I'll let. Even though you're you're on one of the teams, I'll let you make the decision as co-host of Fine. of uh, the men who talk. So this is um, Samantha Mathis to Stephen Dorf. Yes. So the first entry I've got. Oh, one second. Well, there's there's three entries actually. I've got I've got. So we've got a four stepper. So Stephen Dorff was in Blade with Wesley Snipes. Snipes was in To Wong Fu with Stockard Channing. Stockard Channing was in Greece with John Travolta, and John Travolta was in Broken Arrow with Samantha Mathis, and that. That is off max volume. And we have another entry from Laszlo Buckets, our sometime co-host. So he says, so here's the best I could come up with. There has to be a better way. But Blade is the only Stephen Dwarf film I can think of, even though I did on the, that episode talk about Deuces Wild. Um, so Stephen Dwarf was in Blade with Wesley Snipes. Snipes was in Expendables 3 with Mel Gibson. Gibson was in Ransom with Window Window Delroy Lindo. 
and Delroy Lindo was in Broken Arrow with Samantha Mathis. So they're two four-steppers. And then as a last-minute entry from Out of the Shadows, I got this. And I'm going to say that the person that Utah is struggling to remember is Bob Gunton. Luckily, I watched uh, Broken Arrow the other day, didn't I? So she was in Broken Arrow with, now this is really annoying because I can't remember his name. He's the bad guy with John Travolta in Broken Arrow, who he uh, kills with a torch, hitting him in the throat, keeps complaining. Great guy. And he was um, played Cocteau, or whatever his name is, Mr. Procto, the guy who ran the city in Demolition Man. Uh, the twat, you know, uh, he was him who was uh, in Demolition Man with Wesley Snipes, and Wesley Snipes is in Blade with Stephen Dorff. So I don't know if that counts. I can't remember that guy's name, but I can see him. No, he is. So he's talking about Bob Gunton Rupert, but it's up to you whether that's acceptable or not. Uh, how many steps was it? Is that four steps? Uh, it was. What was it? It was. Uh, yeah, Samantha Masters and Broken Arrow with Bob Gunton. And Bob Gunder was in Demolition Man, Wesley Snipes, and Wesley Snipes was his three steps. Okay. Well, uh, I've got a three-stepper, oh. and I do remember everyone's name. So, okay. What I should have said to Mr. Smith is, oh, don't, 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 like, uh, don't just try and waffle around it. Just do what Rupert does and read loads of interviews with Bob Gunter. On the off until chance. He... <laughs> you upon the person's name. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you mine um, because it's a bit cleaner than that. So, and this was so lucky because I just happened to have watched the, this film with Stephen Dorff. So Samantha Mathis is in Broken Arrow with John Travolta, who's in Face Off with Nicolas Cage, who's in World Trade Center with Stephen Dorff. Oh wow! Okay, that's a clean. Okay, yeah. so yeah, I, I would say you win that because you knew you knew the names of the actors in each step. <laughs> it helped. Although I, I mean, I do have some sympathy for that because in a way it's quite clever. It, you know, it's obviously not it's not an A-list actor, so it's quite clever finding a way. You know, I admire the fact that he's he's he has found a way. You know. And so we all get these kind of mind blanks. And I mean, Bob Gunton isn't really the name that springs instantly to mind, is it really? So not even of his own agent. But ultimately, um, I think we've got to stick by uh, strict rules. And at the end of the day, everyone else you, remembered all their actors. OK, so you win this round. What is that? What is that? But he's not disqualified. Um, yeah, I'm just glad that- or something, is it? Four two to you. I I am impressed though that you managed to find a, a link that everyone else went like you know snipes dwarf, but you yeah. did find a you did find another way. Oh, I would have struggled if I hadn't because I, I literally reviewed World Trade Center like two weeks ago. So, <laughs> um, am I okay to kick off with four films in one? Absolutely. Um, it just just to chip away at my never ending list. Um, I just wanted to talk about uh, for the first time in in certainly my adult life. Um, I've watched an Indiana Jones film through it and I thought I enjoyed the first one so much that I watched all four of them pretty much back to back in the same day. And I just wanted to sort of sum them all up together because I know a lot of people had a lot of problems with the fourth one. You specifically refused to watch it. But I am not blinkered by girlish nostalgia, Rupert. I will watch Indiana Jones films and I will tell girls about it at bars when I'm on the pull. So I... 
watched Razor the Lost Ark first, which was really, really good. And I realized how much I'm drawn to adventure films that at some point have two characters saying, we need to go to Peru. And then they laugh and they laugh. And as it fades out, um, a brown map is superimposed with a, with a plane engine noises and a, and a red line moving across countries. Oh. I think that's my favorite part of cinema. And I was like, oh, where are we going now? Um, so that, that was really good. I really enjoyed Raiders of the Lost Ark. I yes. liked... I, I liked how Karen Allen's character is feisty and um, I, I loved all his little, all the nods, all the, all the familiar things that I'm aware of just through pop culture, but watching it in a film, I was really pleased to, to see that this film is a genuinely timelessly amazing romp that, and, and there's something I've watched a lot of Harrison Ford. Like I'm actually more familiar with Harrison Ford's like mid period with like stuff like Firewall because I've watched those films more than more than Indiana Jones. And I realized he has got a really unique screen presence. There's something about how he's sort of he's sort of like sort of old fashioned 1940s masculine and rugged, slightly dour, but also. Yes can be really like wryly amusing there's it's a really weird mix but he's also seems willing to just make fun of himself and it's a really endearing and an incredibly magnetic mix so i watched raiders of the lost ark um i and i and i really enjoyed it again you know the nazis the gold the bringing in the the the, the, the um religious elements brilliant and then i watched straight after it temple of doom and there is what actually um ancient aztecs referred to as a tonal shift because it's a lot darker and and i think although i enjoyed the film i found that it was um it wasn't as magical it it was it wasn't so much of a romp across you know across europe it was like right we, we go to this place we're in this temple and the whole film takes place in this underground evil layer effectively and whilst it was kind of fun I did think oh, I didn't really get the same. It was it, it felt like it needed to be a bit lighter. And and the, I'm not sure of the woman's name in it. I think it might be Claire something. Kate Capshaw. Kate Capshaw. Yeah. Because she was sort of the antithesis of Karen Allen's character in the first one of Marion Raven, where she yes. was she was screeching and whining. And I just didn't believe as much as I, a short round is like was the kid was cool in it. I didn't believe that that Indiana Jones would drag this child in, into his life i just didn't it seemed really and i know the whole all of the films are silly but it, i was like really you'd bring like a an orphan nine-year-old boy in, into the world you inhabit um yeah. so they just seemed a bit silly and yes and the the um, kate capture just kind of was fine but i don't know it was the like i said the, the antithesis of karen allen's character and i just thought i i kind of liked i liked indy having someone equally feisty to bounce off as opposed to someone he can just say shut up at for two hours um indiana jones and the last crusade was much more tonally close to the force what was the first film raiders of the lost ark and i loved it again i thought yeah this is i can see why you as you i believe you said on the podcast they literally ride off to the sunset it's the perfect way to end the trilogy uh, the the moment there's something about the film that draws you in so much to this world it by the time because i watched these films back to back and and obviously they spread over an almost decade uh decade long period when I was watching The Last Crusade and there were like really brief, tender moments where they mention, you know, his mother and the the, the way they haven't bonded as they've as they've grown up and grown apart, as in Sean Connery's character. And obviously there's a flash of the fact that he passed away recently in there as well. 
I, I I felt like I'd watched like eight or nine films with these characters in because I I I loved them so much so quickly, yeah. so I really enjoyed that. And um and again it goes back to the red lines airplanes going over maps. I thought, yeah, back to that good stuff. Don't get that in an underground cabin, do you? With it I, I <laughs> with the bloke rolling his eyes in his head. I, I know what you mean about the the characters, and that's that is the big appeal. And it I think the reason I I won't ever watch the fourth one is just it's not just the riding off into the sunset, but it's the fact that Denim Elliot wouldn't be back. So you know, I, I just thought. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's he's such a key element. He's such a kind of binding force in the films. I just thought, no. Well, he's not in the second one, though, is he? No, he's not. The second one's weird, isn't it? It is a strange outlier, really, isn't it? <laughs> in the trilogy. I, I it's can imagine a prequel that... as well. It's not even a sequel, is it? It's like set before the first one, which is odd. Yeah, like the opening is great. The the, the sort of yeah. the opening set piece in that in that that with, uh, with the um the, the the Chinese emerald or whatever it is in the bar mm. and they're scrabbling around for that vial of antidote. It's brilliant. And then they just go to this underground miserable cavern, and you think, okay, that's and it's almost like the film just slams the brakes on. Um. But I, I could believe that if someone said, oh, actually, Temple of Doom was just another script they kind of altered to fit mm. the Indiana Jones franchise, I'd be like, oh, I can believe that, actually. Whereas the first yeah. and third feel feel genuinely feel like perfect films. You're and, saying the Temple of Doom is the season of the witch of the franchise. <laughs> it's the season. Um, so, yeah, obviously, the first third, fantastic. And it goes back. It, it basically is what. Um, what's that? Like the, the kind of things that Dan Brown wishes he could do with yeah. with the Tom Hanks, you know, it's and and you know National Treasure. They these are the pinnacles of the genre. Um, and then I watched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and it it was fine. And I think I preferred it to Temple of Doom because it did have more globe trotting. Uh, and and I and I know when I remembered when he goes to that nuclear testing site, I thought, oh, this is the the thing, the meme where he gets in the fridge. And funnily enough, I went online and uh, people were saying, oh, the reason he survived that is because he drank from the Holy Grail. And, and I thought, right. Uh, and then I thought, are you the people who are like reading so deeply into this mythology? Bear in mind, this is the first time I've watched these films. And they seem to be forgetting that in all of these films, there's actual magic, actual <laughs> magic um, in the first film. And and just um, I thought um, Temple of Doom, where they fall two miles down in a rubber dinghy and land on concrete and then go over three consecutive waterfalls. There's not the reason that they landed in that dinghy. There's none of that. It's just this fridge thing. Of course, I just pushed that to the back of my mind. And um, yeah, and I I was watching it, and I thought, I like Shia LaBeouf, and he holds his own in the film. And I almost felt like, are they 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 trying to pass the reins? Because that's not going to work. Knowing now... Knowing now that that film was made in 2008, that they obviously didn't pass the reins over. Maybe that's like a weight off a lot of people's mind. When they're watching it, they're thinking, oh, don't make Shia LaBeouf the next Indiana Jones. That's crap. And instantly it puts them on the back foot for the movie. Watching it now, it's, you know, it's silly fun. It's not it's not as magical as as, as Raiders or The Last Crusade. But I enjoyed watching it. And, and at the end, when it all got very alieny which and sci-fi really isn't my thing unless it's event horizon then i just um i just thought oh that's fine you know i don't i don't feel i don't feel put out by that yeah i suppose as well you don't come with the baggage of nostalgia as well so there's no sense of desecration or anything yeah. like that and that's that's not the reason i'm not watching it it's just because i just don't feel the need to 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's a film you do what you like, but I, 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 I wouldn't if, if for example that film, I don't, it doesn't add anything, and and in a way it was just because I was enjoying my time with it so much, I thought oh, at least there's another film for me to tuck into, right. and he he is still that character, and you know it is still fun, but yeah, I would, I preferred it to Temple of the Doom. When I would say. that was it must be at least ten years old that film now, maybe older than that even. Yeah, yeah, it's um, two thousand eight. Well. And yeah, they're still making another one, <laughs> which I, which I'll watch. He will be old. He will, he will be look eight, like one of the characters 81. from the end of Last Crusade. He will, you know, he'll be the knight saying, "For God's sake, someone shove their fist in my heart and squeeze." Um, <laughs> it's only <yeah>. dust. Yeah. <laughs> um, another um, screaming dream two, album. Two seconds. I'm just going to go and grab my drink from across the room. Yeah. See if my telekinetic powers were working, then I could have done that without getting up. Um, so yeah, that's uh, my thoughts on the Indiana Jones films. Uh, okay. Brisk, brisk and brief, but yeah, it was a that was a that was a good day. That was. Oh, it's good that they held up in your eyes because. Yeah, and like I said, I know I'm saying that I preferred I preferred the fourth one to the second one, but I think that's just because I was loving the adventure element so much. Yes. Um, and when it, it is, got a it bit is dark a very and different serious. kind of movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting watching that actually with my wife because she was just translating those of the weird stuff they were saying. When I say weird stuff, I don't just mean oh weird language. What I mean is like the creepy stuff that the bad guy was saying. It was quite interesting. It's really harsh the stuff he's saying as well. Really, I'm going to tear out your heart and eat your soul and things like that. It's like okay. Yeah, and then the other guy chips in with like a, to us it's just a lot of gibberish. But what he's actually saying is you probably need to work on the bridge to the pre-chorus because. That's not going to be a great singer. If you're going to get into hip hop, you need to just be a bit more lightener in your tone. And he's like, oh, OK, we'll work on the backbeat this time. <laughs> Nothing to do with evil chance, all to do with early 90s hip hop. Um, before I dive into Child's Play, I, I'd like to just quickly go over a couple of cinema movies, if that's OK. Because of course, of course. These are kind of time sensitive because obviously they will leave the cinema soon. Because yeah. so, I've watched... Um, no Time to Die, which is the 25th Bond film and the fifth Bond film, fifth and last Bond film for Daniel Craig. Um, and this one was delayed for over a year due to COVID. Um, Danny Boyle was originally going to direct it, but in the end it went to Carrie Fukunaga, mm-hmm. who I suppose is most famous for doing True Detective. Um, so in this is... Uh, uh, obviously it continues on from the previous movie, which is Spectre. So Bond has left MI6 and he's recruited by the CIA uh, to track down a kidnapped scientist. And this leads him to a confrontation with this dastardly enemy known as Safin, uh, who's played by Rami Malek with a lot of scarring makeup. Um in a way, it's kind of pointless reviewing a Bond film because every British person will eventually watch it anyway. But I, I do think it's a good finale uh, for Craig's kind of rendition of the character. I mean, it doesn't all make sense. There's this central pseudoscientific premise of this like deadly illness, uh, which is instantly transmitted by touch and uh, will just kill you, in a, um, which is entirely silly but and it does make it pretty obvious where it's all going uh but i that's fine i don't really care um 
I, but I just found it way less laborious than Spectre, which was just a real drag. Um, and I think part of it is because Bond is now a freelance agent, which gives the film a bit more narrative freedom. And I prefer Rami Malek's performance to Christopher Fultz doing his camp, mild-mannered maniac shtick all over again. So that was a nice change. Uh, the action scenes are really good. And I think that the climax is a fitting farewell. But I, oh, nice. I was left feeling, I, I do hope the next Bond is a little bit more fun and a bit less brooding because I think Daniel Craig's tra- trajectory in this, it seemed quite heavily influenced by the dark, grim dark style of Christopher Nolan, I would say. And I kind of miss the breezier antics and the one-liners and the gadgets really so you, you can say it roger moore you can say it it's fine <laughs> i was thinking i was thinking pierce brosnan actually but oh yeah that's maybe a good hark back to roger moore right? <laughs> using crocodiles as stepping stones brilliant <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I didn't realize there's so many bond films i haven't seen <laughs> just jesus amazing. christ um yeah I, i've um I mean, I grew up with with the, with the Pierce Brosnan stuff. My mum's favourite Bond was Dalton. But with this film, I've never heard, I haven't heard anything bad about it yet. And yeah, I'm, I I will watch it because I, I mean, I still think my favourite Bond film is Casino Royale. But yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm with you with Skyfall. I enjoyed, and then when Spectre came on, I just found it really ambling. Yeah, and it was and when and yeah, Christoph was the whole thing about him is so brooding. Then when he came out the shadow, he was basically like a tap dancing, you know, washboard singer. You're like, oh, okay, I didn't quite yeah, see he that. Was, it's like a kind of like uh, like toned down version of his part in Inglorious Bastards, really, wasn't it? And his thought, yeah. well, it's just not that menacing. Um, just too camp, really. Uh, he is in this briefly, but thankfully. It doesn't take up too much screen time. Anyway, I also watched uh, Dune, or to give it its full title, Dune Part One, uh, which is the latest film from Denis Villeneuve. Please, Rupert made... Denis Villeneuve. Uh, we Sorry. are we're, we're fans of that man, by the way. We are. He made uh, in the sci-fi genre. He made Arrival and Blade Runner twenty forty-nine, um, and. There's a reason you'll find that the marketing is not focusing on the plot of this movie because it is strictly part one and you have to treat it that way. It's not does not come to a conclusion. And and also it's very confusing um, because it's just an avalanche of names and places and historic events. And Frank Herbert's book. Is it directed by that um, that if it's just an avalanche of names, is it directed by um, that was his name? No, no, that guy that I love, that um, Godfrey Ho. Oh, God, Did yeah. He, yeah. yeah. If it starts off with, like, this alien, like, desert landscape <laughs> and all these futuristic structures, and then a voiceover comes in with, Paul was asking Ian what Barry thought about Clive. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, the thing is, that's a double joke as well, because the main guy in this is called Paul. So... <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> So anyway, Frank Herbert's book. Yes, this is based on the first of 16 books and this is only half of it. So anyway, so by all accounts, it's a piece of unfilmable world building. Hang Um, on. This is this is the first half. This is part one of the first half of the first of 16 books. Yeah. So this is yeah half of the first book. And there are six. And this 
Bloody hell, okay. So, okay, in layman's terms, because I don't really know anything about this, um, uh, there's this desert planet called Arrakis, uh, and it's prized for its spice, which is a vital resource. And these dastardly folk called the Harkonnen uh, ruled it with an iron fist, oppressing the indigenous people called the, the Fremen. The Harkonnen leave, and the House Atreides are beckoned forth to take control of the planet. Uh, and they're kind of, they're pretty peaceful and honourable, um, but it's all a trick because once House Atreides are there, the Harkonnen come back uh, to wipe them out to take ultimate control of the planet. So there's this kind of prince of Atreides called Paul, yes, uh, played <laughs> by Timothy Chalamet, and he's having these visions of the Fremen, uh, the indigenous people, uh, the, the desert people, as a kind of prophecy. And he'll get his chance to meet them later on because uh, when the attack comes, he escapes into the wasteland with his mother. So this is obviously directed by Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve or Villeneuve. Villeneuve. I'm not sure. Villeneuve. Yeah. Um, and obviously that means it's gorgeous. And I, there are times in this film when I thought it, it it was like looking at the screen was like it was the culmination of everything cinema promised <laughs> since its inception. It was every frame is a work of art. So there are moments like that. There were other moments when I was a bit bored, to be honest, because it feels like a Star Wars movie, to be honest, with all of the fun and whimsy removed and the pacing slowed down. And I I use this. I use the example of Star Wars quite pointedly because actually Paul is very much a reluctant hero in the Skywalker vein. So it's quite similar indeed. Um, it's all very, very weighty and very foreboding and pretty depressing, to be honest. Zendaya uh, has been doing a lot of promotion, I see, online, but she's barely in it. She is confined to Paul's visions, his tedious, endless visions. So... All she does really is look sultry in the desert, looking over her shoulder like a perfume ad. Um, Timothy Chalamet is fine, but I think I think the problem is almost just the sheer scope of the material because it's it's sort of a believable fantasy world, but it it really struggles to make anything relatable on a kind of human level. Uh, like I mean, even him himself, Paul. He yeah, we can get his reluctance, understand that. But he's also the master, this master swordsman, and he can control people by putting on this magical voice. So it, it's just the scale is so big and the stakes are so enormous that, that no one in the film can really possibly act like a regular, relatable human being. And I think this is where Arrival and Blade Runner were better movies, because while they had this big scale kind of they were conceptually macro, if you like. They managed to deliver their emotional impact on a, on a micro level because they explored recognisable universal human emotions. And and I do feel that he's, you know, he's really trying to get us invested in Paul's struggle and his relationship with his mother. But I don't know. It's like he's got so much baggage and so much world building to do that I found it really difficult to relate. Um but it is worth seeing at the cinema just for the visuals because it is astonishing to look at. 
and I would take a kind of risky sci- sci-fi epic over another Marvel movie. So, interestingly, I found yeah. out the other day that um, obviously Timothy Chalamet made his name in Call Me by Your Name, which he started with Army Hammer, and I found out that Shia LaBeouf was originally going to be um, his lover in that, and uh, and actually I don't know whether he actually started filming or whatever, but he the studio got rid of him because of some allegations in the press um, from his ex-girlfriend or something like that. So they got mm-hmm. rid of Shia LaBeouf and they brought in Army Hammer. <laughs> they didn't know what they were getting there, did they? Oh, dear. No. Yes. Yeah, they turned up in this trailer and said, oh, I don't know what the lights are off in your trailer, Army, but um, yeah, no, thanks so much for ripping Wait, the floor's really sticky in here. <laughs> You two, the, what are you doing? Are you putting? Is it? You've got pennies in a jar. Have you put pennies in your mouth and you're breathing or something? It's a bit coppery in here. <laughs> I, I feel a bit in ten minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Drink a lot of red wine and gacking as you do so, Mr. Hammer. Um, there's a film on your teeth, Mr. Hammer. Um, just when you talk about the the guy doing the magical voice, I did have a mental image of someone saying uh, at the bar and saying, oh, "I'll have a pint of, I'll have a pint of lager and black currant cordial, please." In this space opera, and someone saying, "I'm not going to buy you that." And then he says, "I fancy a pint of lager and black, and I will buy it." What is his magical voice? Is it a northern accent? <laughs> um, it's kind of this. It's almost like he's shouting the words and then this kind of booming voice is almost like it's almost like inside his head and it's like a telepathic thing. Sure there's an explanation for it. Um, so he's shouting then. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's yeah so he's I shouting realize... with his fingers over his ears. So it sounds like muffled in his brain. I didn't realise how many times when I was a child, my father, after drinking 16 pints of Mackerson's, had a magical voice. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's them. That's those two movies. So this was, definitely, okay. definitely, well, I mean, they're both worth watching for different reasons, but No Time to Die is a, a very yeah, good film. Dune is a very beautiful film. I, I did, um, Denis Vigneur, I did um, read something, a, a brief quote that he said, you need to watch Dune in the cinema, watching it at home is like looking at a picture of Gillian Anderson that someone else has drawn with glasses on that aren't their prescription. It's quite, so, quite detailed, a specific description. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm obviously going to watch it on my Nokia 3310. No, I'm, I am going to watch it at home, Denny. So yeah, I will. I will watch it. It, it. The does it the original? Is it more more cumbersome, less cumbersome the original, or does it, as in, it does it feel like a totally separate Lynch's entity version? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just a bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, hmm. a fascinating mess, but a mess nonetheless. I <clears throat> this is clearly. A much more faithful and superior piece of filmmaking really. and is is the next the next doom part two is that uh, denny's next move or is this yes. going to be just well down i, mean, the yeah, I know route? they're going to start filming at some point in 2022 so we, we won't see it for at least two years so well um am i okay to jump back in with something a two minute sure thing 
And just to just just to say that um, moving on from these this sort of futuristic alternate reality space epics, I'm going to move to a 2003 mystery thriller called Basic, with uh, st- directed by John McTiernan and starring John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, <clears throat> it's a two minute because this is one of those films that I've watched probably about eight or nine times in my life, and I keep thinking, oh, I like this, and and I like it, but I don't think I like it for the reasons the film wants me to like it for. Um, it, it, the, the the basic premise is that there's uh, Samuel Jackson is a drill instructor for a load of uh, recruits in the army, and he takes them off on this training drill in this monsoon in the jungle, and he gets killed, and most of the platoon get murdered. Two guys come back, one of them Giovanni Ribisi, another one someone I've already forgotten about, and the film is John Travolta coming in as a sort of um, military detective working with Connie Nielsen who lives on the base and talking between the two people and it's a lot of reconstructions of what really happened which is the sort of noirish uh, mystery element and it's fine it starts off right this is 2003 and it starts off with John Travolta swigging a liter of Jack Daniels in the shower and there's like an extended topless sequence and he's got such a weird build because he, he is when you think of him in, in like, say, Saturday Night Live in Greece, he's like, obviously quite uh, thin and, and lithe and wiry. And, and he's got this bull neck now, like a real bull neck. And he's so thick set by 2003. But I thought he'd have a bit of a belly on him. But no, he's he is so thick set with like a full on six pack and like a total square. It's really bizarre. Um, and. But then I remember seeing that sequence and thinking, well, John, you're looking pretty good. You know, you're like a sexy dad. Unfortunately, he spends the rest of the film wearing a black T-shirt that's slightly too tight with jeans that he has bought from Tesco. These really like piercing cheap blue jeans that are just they just like really pop out of the screen every scene he's in. Um, it's it's fine. It's a fine. It's a, it's odd to have a unless you're watching something like High Crimes, you know, a, um, a thriller set on a military base. It's quite a unique setting because obviously they tend to have their own rules and their own sort of jurisdiction and so on with the court martials. And it's all exciting. Um, but then when the film reveals its hand, it's so silly and silly in a way that it, it, it almost relies on. The, you as a viewer being just completely thick because the twists it pulls out you think that that's not for example without spoiling it it's not 20 years yet it, it would rely on everyone on that military base like you know if you imagine like how many units there are and how many people work together not knowing who anyone is at all and you think that's not you all you do is you turn up with you sorry these are the people who've died these are the people who survived. This is your questioning. And they would have all of their personal details and a picture of them, like a passport photo of them. And the whole plot relies on that just being skipped over. Mm. And and it just feels a really cheap ending and a, and a weirdly smug ending as well. But it is possibly the last decent film John McTiernan made. So there's that. And Harry Connick Jr. is in it. And I would give I will buy a pint of I will buy a pint of strongbow and orange juice for anyone who can tell me what the hell accent Giovanni Ribisi is trying to do as a as as a gay um like private. I don't know what he's doing. Right. Uh, is it American? Yeah, it's American, but it's sort of like this um 
it's obviously set in the present day and it's almost like this sort of weird um i don't know like turn of the century southern bell draw i don't know what he was doing i have no idea what he was up to and the thing is it's not even like he's showing off he's mortally wounded in the film as well so it's not like he'd be sort of like showing off and playing them off each other he's on his deathbed and he's putting on this bizarre voice so worth watching it just for that just for that yeah. okay so that's basic john, for john mctain and complete completists and it's on amazon prime yeah okay um all right mm, i don't think any none of the first few child's play films are on anything for free unfortunately but um I watched the first one on this a seven day MGM channel trial. Hopefully, um, <laughs> we do love our trials, don't we? We do. Uh, the first one was made in 1988, uh, directed by Tom Holland, who also made the excellent Fright Night. Um, there's this kid in a, uh, with a single mum um, uh, in a not a rich home. Uh, and he desperately wants a good guy doll. But of course, mum is short of cash, so she buys one off a guy in a back alley. Um, it turns out that this is the very doll that contains the spirit of a serial killer, uh, played by Brad Dourif. Um, And the doll's nickname is Chucky. And the doll starts killing people. The kid is the suspect, actually, because well, who's going to believe a doll started doing it? But anyway, um, but anyway, his mum and a reluctant cop played by Chris Sarandon uh, are on the case. Um, but can they stop Chucky from trying to pass his spirit into the kid? Um, it's it's a pretty bright um, and funny and efficient script. It's very fast moving. It's utterly ridiculous, of course. But but like Fright Night. Um, Tom Holland really he nails the tone there's no like self-referential humor or winking at the audience none of that everyone just plays it straight and it's genuinely quite creepy and menacing at times there are some really dumb moments like when Chucky is attacking Chris Sarandon as he's driving a car and for some reason Chris Sarandon just seems incapable of pressing the brake so it's like almost like a a slapstick comedy sequence which doesn't make any sense but yeah, I mean it's quite fun. Um, the doll effects are passable, and Brad Dourif is very funny and mean in the uh, Chucky role. So it's pretty good. It's I'd say it's iconic without being classic. That's about as far as I go. Oh, so that is the original Charles play. Do you want to squeeze in? A, do you want to squeeze in a few more? Yeah, I mean we can go straight to Charles play two. Oh, for uh, God's now, sake, let's do it. <laughs> There's a name uh, I should just get out of the way now. Don Mancini. He's the one who's driven this whole franchise from pretty much from beginning to end. Um, uh, it's So this is the sequel, Charles by Two, is made in 1990, written again by Don Mancini. Um, and it's directed by one of the co-writers from the first film. So the Play Pals company rebuilds the cursed doll after its incineration in the first film spoiler alert um so the kid andy needs to go into foster care while his mother recovers from the trauma 
So Jenny Agatha and her husband are the foster parents and they run a large home with other foster kids. So it's more expansive than the first film. Chucky escapes from the facility and tracks Andy down. He still wants to transfer his soul. Um, he masquerades as another good guy doll this time named Tommy. Um, it's not really clear why Andy would suddenly embrace this new version of the Chucky doll, given that given his previous experiences but anyway it's mostly a rehash of the same beats from the first film really like chucky being cruel and crafty no one believing andy until they start having their ankles slashed um so chucky specifically needs andy as a vessel for his soul but i don't know why he needs to torment the kid (laughs) other than just for fun but it doesn't really matter because the essential fear in these movies the idea of this childlike creature um something which is meant to bring joy to children um taking these childish games to really really horrific violent extremes that's kind of the essential joke and this one is a a bit of a fan favorite apparently and it it is certainly scarier than the first film and the puppet technology is improved as well which really helps and there's this um really cool finale in uh in the doll factory itself which is almost like it, it felt like Tim Burton meets the Terminator. It's it's really <laughs> crazy um, finale. And I'd so overall, I'd say it's as good a film as the original. Uh, not as fresh or surprising, but a bit more expansive. Same kind of humour, same balance of tone. So, yeah, I'd say that Charles Play 2 is, is a worthy sequel to a decent film. I, I didn't expect you to say that I could, because in my head now I'm um, echoing last last uh, last episode we were talking about Halloween where this was not the case. You no. said different words in a different order then. <laughs> Halloween too, <clears throat> where it all started to go wrong <laughs> for thirty years. Um, well, <clears throat> if we're on twos, I'll move across to mine. Then I'll talk about uh, it, Chapter Two, which is something I've been meaning to watch for about three years, and I finally got round to it. Um, I'm, I'm, this is pretty much a two-minute, to be honest, which is disappointing for a film that has such grand ideals over a, um, over two movies. But uh, the first film, I, I remember enjoying it, uh, um, and having the same problems I do with this film, where it's just so bloated. Um, yes, it feels like for for a start. So this the the story is that um, you know, the clown it has come back 27 years later or 30 years later. And now all of the the losers club have grown up and they have to come back to combat it. It starts off with a really like harsh attack on a gay couple that I assumed would have some sort of I thought it was going to say, OK, you know, it, it is making the town. It's affecting the town and making the town grubby and nasty. And it's have, but no, mm. it's just a really unpleasant opening sequence. I thought fair enough. Mm. Watching two gay men get kicked to death. OK, by a load of uh, jocks. Fine. Um. <clears throat> And uh, I, I'm a big fan of James McAvoy, so I was quite looking forward to this. But the, I think Bill Skarsgård is fantastic as Pennywise. Mm-hmm. And when when Pennywise on the screen, this, the, it, it's so quiet and threatening. And he's got this kind of like broken, broken, cracked voice that's perfectly pitched. And I yeah. was hips deep. And it's really full of weird idiosyncrasies as well, isn't it? Like he'll say, yeah. st- he'll s- like stretch out 
or word for no apparent reason. It's really unsettling. Really unsettling. Constantly dribbling with his one eye off centre and, and yeah, and sort of like stutter and then and then sort of slurp. And yeah, it's, it's brilliantly, brilliantly pitched. But I think I, I it's such a miserable film uh, f- full of abuse uh, from every angle. And I just think that one of the guys in it, the main guy, and I, Bill Hader, he his defense mechanism is to crack jokes jokes that are sometimes funny mostly are not and i understand that's his characters that he just can't but as a viewer you think can you, you shut up you can shut up if you want and um the the problems began when it you've got this group of like five or six friends and at different points in the film they're all by themselves and after it happens for the first time, you realize why the film is nearly three hours long or over three hours long as it stands. Because what happens is they say, right, we need to we need to meet up. So then you'll know, right, I'm going to see little vignettes of each character. Right. OK, no, you're meeting up. And then they will meet up and then they'll say, do you remember when this happened? Yes. OK. Now I have to watch five vignettes of them remembering something. Hurry up and remember. And then they'll say, right, before we fight it, we have to go off and find tokens of our childhoods. Right. So now I'm going to watch them. And, and it goes on and on and on. I'm just thinking, right, OK, get to it. And then, of course, at the end, and I'm going to spoil this a little bit. So skip ahead if you're bothered about spoilers for it. Chapter two. This all builds up all of this magic and these ancient Indians and their childhoods and how it comes back every 27 years. But don't worry, kids, because they realize when they're fighting it in its slightly more convincing the 1990 spider form that the way you defeat this ancient celestial evil that has roamed Earth for thousands of years is just to call it a knob. It's just to say, oh, go away, you silly Billy. We're not frightened of you. And it literally shrivels up and dies. And call me old-fashioned that felt underwhelming and it goes on as well the last sequence is like 40 minutes of them running around this cave system oh having God, it yeah. and then i just and then they say oh, actually we can just tell it we're not afraid of it and i thought surely surely over the last four thousand years someone has thought of that yeah um, someone has genuinely not been afraid of it yeah and it just felt really really silly and yeah, it, it was it was such a weird, such an extended letdown. Yeah. I would be more inclined to watch a YouTube video of um, Bill Skarsgård's moments in this film because they're so effective and so threatening that then watch the film again because it just feels I will never sit through that again. It's it's too much time for too little reward. Um, and yeah, it was that end of sequence and the payoff is disappointing it's a problem isn't it no i do i think it uh, in large part it's a problem with the source material to be honest this mm. is famously a good first half and a, just a rubbish second half so yeah <laughs> it's probably part of the issue um right okay um so i'll, I'll let's run through child's play three then uh which i also paid for astonishingly um <laughs> It's a remarkable drop in quality, this one. This was made in 1991, nine months after part two. Um, so Don Mancini really resented the fact that 
it was such a swift turnaround and he doesn't like the movie. I don't like it either. Um, this is the one that was cited in news reports um, after the murder of James Bulger. Um, the idea, though, that those killers saw this movie has been debunked. So it's not true. Um, but bizarrely, even though it was made nine months after the second one, this film is actually set eight years later. Uh, so the company is relaunching the good guy doll. And once again, profit overrides the concerns of the original victim. Um, so this evil CEO actually says at one point, what are children but consumer trainees? Mm, yeah, satire. Um, so this time, some of the blood from Chucky's mangled corpse gets into the factory mix. So, of course, his soul is then baked into a new doll. Um, Andy, now grown up a fair amount, is enrolled in military school. By the um, way, this Andy, is that a nod to Toy Story? Uh, well, the other way around, possibly. But although, oh, yeah. actually, some of the uh, marketing for the recent reboot of Child's Play did involve Chucky murdering toys from Toy Story, which is quite amusing. Anyway, oh, okay. so Andy's he's enrolled in military school. He's traumatised by memories of Chucky. Uh, Chucky tracks him down, of course. Um, but he actually ends up choosing another child host. So this one, Andy needs to protect the kid. So there's this lame romance between Andy and this girl recruit. And the guy who plays Andy is like 10 years older, obviously, and 10 times worse an actor. Um, the love interest gets injured in the final sequence and she just becomes a squealing damsel in distress um there's more focus on chucky himself this time so a lot more of him talking and scheming and plotting and manipulating rather than what it has been before where it's him occasionally invading scenes of human characters there's a whole bunch of tired cliched military training scenes mostly recycled from full metal jacket um the script just doesn't have any of the subversive humor of the first two at all and also just an essential point here is that there's no reason for the setting to be a military school because everyone just acts like a bunch of giggling school kids uh all the girls are wearing full makeup i, I just think why not just a boarding school for troubled kids or something why military school i guess it's so they got access to guns um so that they can have like a kind of shootout final sequence. But I just think it's a smokescreen for an absence of ideas. The the setting also means that it's a much more mean spirited film than the previous ones because the commanding officers are just bullies and monsters. And that's another problem with the movie is it it's you don't want the in slasher films you don't want the people you're watching to die because then that eliminates a lot of the tension but in this it really establishes all the victims as just nasty pieces of work and it's like okay so it instantly it instantly highlights who basically the victims are going to be by making them just the most unpleasant people in the room so that just completely eliminates any tension the writing is just terrible there are no characters just tropes there's no tension no humor um even the deaths are less fun than the previous films. It it it's just abysmal. So 
Child's Play 3 could definitely be skipped. Okay. And how many more are there before we get to the reboot from a few years ago? Because I know there's like Bride of Chucky and five. Wow. Four okay. Or five. I think it's just cool. Four, um, I, I'm going to quickly talk about um, Deceived from 1991, which is a thriller starring uh, Goldie Horn and John Hurd, the dad from Home Alone. Um, or what what pops to my mind when I think of John Hurd is a brilliant sequence in um, with James Garner and Jack Lemmon and my fellow Americans from 1997, I want to say, where John Hurd plays the vice president uh, and he and he is just a dullard throughout the entire film. And then he hatches this huge plot to overthrow the president and take his place. And when they sort of um, confront him at the end, he says, you've spent all of this time thinking I'm just stupid. But in reality, it's all been just a big facade. And it's one of the best lines in cinema. It's delivered so well. And he actually it's it's he does a similar thing in this. Uh, in a horror way, it's, it's effectively a sort of horror thriller. So um, I can spoil this because it's 1991. So if you don't want to know the ending to Deceived with Goldie Hawn, then skip ahead. But the plot is that um, Goldie Hawn and John Hurd meet up in a restaurant when Hurd date stands her up and they get talking. Uh, they get together. The film cuts forward five years and they've got a, a, a five-year-old daughter. And they're both incredibly wealthy and live in like a massive, like four-story brownstone in Manhattan. And <clears throat> he works as a sort of... Uh, I don't know, like he's something like a museum curator and she is an artist and she starts having doubts that he is who he says he is, uh, you know, his, his history. And just as she's having these doubts, someone is killed and this four point five million dollar Egyptian necklace goes missing. And then he supposedly dies in a car accident and she believes he's faked his death and there's something going on. And she is right. Um, so the the majority of the, the middle of the film is people assuming that John Hurd is dead and her saying, is he, though, for like 45 minutes. Um, John Hurd's clothes in this film. He, like he wears effectively uh, like a polo shirt because in this film he's quite slim yeah. and he's sort of like 80s handsome. Uh, but he's wearing like a top button done up polo shirt and they're all horrible colors like a murky brown or a, an off purple and they're always like baggy on the arms baggy round the sides like he's covering up a belly and then cuffed at the bottom so they're really unflattering and it comes to a head when at the end of the film when he again comes up to Goldie Horn and reveals his grand plan that he's wearing one of these things Oh, like and over it, he's got like a a double brown back to front suede waistcoat that's too big for him. <laughs> like, what are you wearing? These um, sound like craft ales. <laughs> murky brown, off purple, double, double brown. brown. <laughs> if you had a two tone pint, you know there was something going on. Is that is that just oil? Um, yeah. The, so the, this. It is okay. It's an okay nineties thriller, yeah. um, but the but the and I am going to spoil this right. So so what happens is she's you know what's happening and then her daughter goes missing, and she said or we are led to believe he's faked his death because he wants to take this 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 necklace and bugger off, but he's supposedly happily married. 
so and, and he's extremely wealthy anyway so why would he need all this this necklace anyway it turns out that he's got a secret family that he's also got uh, a young a pregnant wife and a young daughter uh, and 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 it's really not explained why um so when goldie horn catches up with him and meets his wife and then John Hood gets older and says, right, you know, you don't tell her that you know anything. Otherwise, I kill our daughter. It's really unclear. There's no, I, I was so confused. And also logistically, I mean, you and I, Rupert, are both like fathers of a single child in a relationship. And the thought with the level of sleep I have of maintaining a second separate family. Right. is <laughs> unfathomable. <laughs> I would be cream cracked and i and i would also it'd be so difficult to keep them separate and like he doesn't like he goes away on the occasional business trip but it's like how would you just disappear for days on end and it, yeah. it, it, it does not hold up to close scrutiny but the reason i wanted to say this there's two things i wanted to point out is um is a line he says and which is really weirdly effective um, and and also the end of this film, because I remember watching this film when I was very, very young, like eight or nine years old and um, not understanding it at all. But there's a sequence at the end where he she kills John Hurd by standing in a lift shaft in darkness, play in darkness when the camera pans out. You clearly see it. Um, and he goes to sort the of lunges towards it and falls down it. And I've had that image in my mind since I was like a preteen. And mm. I've always wondered for like 30 years what it was from. And it's from Deceived. So that was really nice yes. when it came up. I thought, oh, my God, it's like Jim Carter. I remember that him fighting on that pommel horse in the middle of a town. But I thought, well, what film is that? And then obviously that's Jim Carter, be. Kurt Thomas. Um, the other thing is, there's a bit at the end of the film where they meet in, uh, where the climax takes place in this, um, you know, uh, tarpaulin on the windows flapping construction site that's being built. And she says to him, why are you doing this? And it's a valid question because it is unclear as to like what benefit he gets from from doing this. And he he does this. It's a really, we, I really found it impressive. Where he just says, I I always do what comes next, no matter how difficult it is. And she sort of frowns at him slightly, and he keeps on repeating it, and like until he's just shouting it, and his eyes are like shining with rage, but also like dead and lifeless. And I actually got goosebumps, and I thought that's such a weird thing to say. Um, you know, I always do what comes next, no matter how difficult it is, because this is all of your own making, and we're not party in this film because it's all seen from Goldie. We're not party to your. Uh, thought processes or, or um, what's the word like um, modus operandi yeah. and and I thought I wish this was a better film so that really good scene and performance would have, have had much more of an impact on me um, unfortunately it's just not a good film around it it's just a very flat 90s thriller so if you're a big John Hood or Goldie Horn fan by all means watch it uh, they really were actors of that time as well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a good Goldie Horn film. I was thinking this as I was watching it. I can't remember Private Benjamin. I mean, Overboard, I'm not the target audience for. Yes. And I, I do like 90s thrillers. Death Becomes Her, I do need to watch. Yes, you um, do need to watch that. That's very good. And it's, so, well, that, again, it's it's Bruce Willis doing comedy, which he, which I think he's probably is, it really is his calling and he needs to do more of it. That's the way he says, why would I want to live forever? What if I get bored? But like, that's his initial instant thought. What if I get bored? Um, brilliant. Um, yeah, so it's 
worth it for that one scene. And if you're a John Hurd fan and you fancy something apart from Home Alone or My Fellow Americans. Um, right. What's that on? That's on. That's on Prime, that is. Possibly, uh, possibly actually on Disney Plus. So um, I'll move on to Bride of Chucky now because. So this is the fourth film. This is the fourth film. And this one's on Netflix, actually. Um, this was made in 1998, so there's quite a gap there. And it's, it's in a way, it's the first reboot of the series. Um, Don Mancini writes again. The director is Ronnie Yu, who made Freddy vs. Jason as well. Um, so the whole Andy storyline is gone now. And yeah. uh, we bring in Jennifer Tilly. She plays Tiffany. Uh, she's um Drift's old girlfriend and she's tracked him down and it, obviously a doll form she's tracked his doll form down and she splices him back together so they can be reunited and really it's all centered around their toxic relationship the main innocent in the film is a very young Catherine Heigl her and her best friends are well her boyfriend and her gay best friend her her boyfriend is Jennifer Tilly's neighbour, and he agrees to transport uh, these killer dolls across the country for a bunch of money. Um, oh, I should mention as well that Jennifer Tilly's character is uh, murdered and put into a, another doll. So anyway, so yeah, and that that all happens because basically. Um, Charles, as in Brad Dourif's character, becomes insanely jealous of the fact that Jennifer Tilly can like flirt in human form. So he transforms, he transfers her soul into this doll, which her doll looks a bit like a spitting image doll, to be honest. It's pretty funny. Um, so anyway, so they end up having to reluctantly work together, uh, these kind of toxic lovers, and they together they need to track down this amulet so they can both return to human form it's quite uh, frivolous really the, the storyline but anyway it's definitely a post-scream horror this one because it's, it's very self-referential and goofy there there are lots of props from various horror franchises dotted around there's like a glove from freddy and stuff like that this is actually yeah. brad duris personal favorite of the franchise as well i like how the toxic relationship with the dolls and their cruel antics um make it like their toxicity actually spreads into the relationship of Catherine Heigl and her boyfriend so it's like by Brad and Jennifer being so like toxic with each other um they actually intoxicate this human relationship and in doing that it actually helps to fix their own relationship it's quite amusingly uh like nuanced and funny and ironic um so yeah it's it's pretty cool it's quite, quite sharply written it's it's also the first time that um the chucky character has properly used humans cleverly to achieve his own ends rather than just simply killing everyone or torturing them for fun he's actually using humans to achieve his own ends which is uh a new thing there's a puppet sex scene um which uh i thought 
Team America made up, but no, it's right here. So we've got it here first. And the finale is a bit disappointing compared with the elaborate finales of the first two films. But but then the actual very ending is just disgusting and pretty hilarious. So I think overall it's a it's pretty decent actually, and I could, it's definitely a breath of fresh air in the franchise and a massive step up from the previous film. I just and it, it's fascinating the fact that they stuck with Don Mancini for all this, you know, because like he was involved in the first three, which was diminishing returns at a rapid pace. Uh, and then he comes up with this, which is completely different, really. It's much more comedic uh, and kind of slapstick. So, uh, yeah, because uh, I was I thought you would say, oh, a new director, fresh eyes, you know, fresh approach. Yeah. But the fact that it's the same bloke. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, yeah, it's quite strange, but fair play. I mean, he, he is. And this isn't even, you know, this is only the second this is only the this is the first of two re, uh, reboots that he created himself, which is amazing, really. Um, so is, is he the sole director of the entire series? No, he's not. He hasn't directed up to this point. Uh, he's just been writer. So it's really oh, right, okay. it's really all about his vision, though. OK, um, no, it, it's it, I've got to say as well, it's. It, <laughs> Obviously, the the like you say with the James Bulger murder, the um, oh, do you know what? I'm actually looking at Chucky doll now. I'll take a picture. I just realised the famous. We clean up this room. I'll t- I'll take a picture of what I can see, and I put it on WhatsApp, uh, so you can appreciate this. I just re- I looked up and saw. Him, I thought that's quite surprising. Like he's edging closer in the room as we do this talk. Um, but I'll send that to you now, so you can appreciate it in real time for the listeners at home. Um, but. The, the third film got such notoriety and mm. you, you realize that there's obviously more to it than just that. that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, it's, it's, it, it's, the third film got the notoriety and it's easily the worst one. Um, so then, yeah, before we move on to the fifth film, I, I will talk about a film I wanted to talk about for a little while because it was filmed in Kyrdiv, uh in oh. part. This is this is Mark Wahlberg's Infinite um, it was filmed on Newport Road. And so, yeah, this is Mark Wahlberg and Chiwetel Ejiofor. And um, this film is, not, it's not even average. It's actively not very good. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the plot is that um, the, the man that I've, I, I think I, we both like him, but I think I fancy him just a bit more than you, but he's not old enough to be in the bar, is Dylan O'Brien. And it starts off with an extremely CG-heavy car chase where uh, Dylan O'Brien... Uh, is is hiding something from a, from pursuers, and before he dies, he tells uh, his cohorts over the radio that uh, you know it's inside, look inside, and then he dies. And then for the next, I think it's like thirty or forty years, they're looking for this. Uh, it turns out to be this egg that, if it's open, can end all of creation. And in the film, uh, it turns out uh, it's directed by Anton Fuqua as well. So you you expect more from this. Um, an egg that has this thing and that when it's open it basically devours organic life so it's just, mm. just a world ender and mm. and then it turns out there's there's basically goodies and baddies who there are people who want to catch the egg and not to kill everything in the universe and people who want to kill everything in the universe and the reason for that is because 
uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's character, uh, his sort of cabal, believe that there's no point to life because they keep reincarnating in other bodies when they die with with all the memories and knowledge and skills, and they keep moving through time and there's no end to it. And then the other side believe, the infinite believe that they are there to, to protect it. Um, so it's searching for this MacGuffin, and Mark Wahlberg is a character who they believe is Dylan O'Brien's character reborn, uh, and he he knows where the egg is. They just need to unlock his skills and memories to help them uh, track it down. This film does not stop explaining the plot until the final reel, Rupert. I have never seen a film where it just thinks the audience is literally just cockeyed, one eye on the ashtray, one eye on the can of Carlin in their hand. I, I, I was watching it and I saw the introduction sequence and it's very clear that Mark Wahlberg has got these suppressed memories and it's very clear that, you know, it's they're from reincarnation uh, because he, to make money on the side, makes like fourth century feudal Japanese swords. And he's like, I don't know, I can just do it. So when he gets approached by this cult that says, oh, the reason you can do that and the reason you can do all these other things you can seemingly do on the fly is because you're, you, you, you're holding like hundreds of lifetimes worth of knowledge. Mm. It's not that unusual in that context, is it? Like if I could make fourth century Japanese swords for no reason without even going on YouTube and someone explained that, I'd think, oh, do you know what? There might be more to this. I swear to God, as he's fighting Chiwetelaji for at the end of this film and they're like, fighting on an airplane they're still explaining the plot shouting over sort of like oh the thing is we die and we come back see oh don't we oh really yeah that's why you know how to do this see oh i was wondering that and you think i've had two hours of this guys i got to grips with this in like (laughs) the preamble and it's it's just a film that is it's constantly going over its own plot to the point that like all the deaths and sacrifices just feel empty especially because you know they're going to be reborn again anyway and also and this is a spoiler and it's 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 a brand new film so skip ahead if you do want to have a spoiler uh the it's got the most disappointing ending sequence i've a death sequence i've seen in a while because it, it, it all goes up to the end they find the, the egg blah 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 and then at the end of it mark Wilder just jumps out of a plane and lands in some water and then floats for a bit and then it just cuts forward 30 years mm-hmm. and i thought i thought he just escaped then but no he's dead oh. <laughs> and I, I was so like oh he's dead is he it was such a such an underwhelming death sequence for this this you know eternal hero. I thought, oh, fair enough. What a worst. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger jumped off a plane into like a foot of water in Commando and just ran off. Well, Indiana Jones, right, jumped out of a plane, landed like feet straight on concrete. <laughs> There's such a thin like uh, underlay to that. Um, to that like inflatable boat or whatever it is no. there's yeah. nothing there's nothing yeah. there's no you, you, cushioning whatsoever if you put that dinghy that they were all they all landed two miles down on concrete on if you put that down on a gravel path and sat in it you'd think oh the stones have gone up my ass this is really uncomfortable and hurting if i fell two miles down and landed on a gravel path i think i'd probably have to book a half day from work the next day <laughs> um yeah infinite and it, it, it i it, it seems because it spends so long explaining itself, you get the feeling surely they don't think this is a franchise because it's such a basic premise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like this, you know, like bright, it feels like the start to a non-starting franchise. That's what there's, I got. There's no worse feeling is there. 
no you just you're watching something which has got such such unearned ambition somehow yeah so it's it's not even a good action film it's just people explaining the plot to each other so don't watch it heavy car chase at the start as well why also because of real you can have cars in real life because (laughs) i've spoiled because i've spoiled it as well right i will say this so dylan o'brien says that this this is another massive spoiler it says at the start bear in mind he's got a wound in his abdomen right from like the fight he says look inside and they're looking for this egg that he had when he died and they keep his body in cryogenic stasis and they cannot find this egg where do you think he's hidden it in himself yeah. In in the wound in his abdomen, he just popped it in there, and they're like, "Oh, that's really clever. It's in him." Yeah, the only place it could be if I said it's inside, and he shows it up in his ass before his car explodes, before his Morris Minor goes up. He did shove it up his bum, though, didn't he? I mean, I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, he could have put it through the open wound, but he, he could have been up his butt. They don't say ass at the ass. <laughs> they just they just like lean down and pull it out of him unseen. Although when they do pull it out, they do go. Give me a wet wipe. Um. So. <laughs> so yeah not not very good film at all okay what is that on again is that on amazon it is isn't it that's amazon special that's yeah yeah okay i'm not gonna bother watching that i wasn't really tempted to be honest for one brief glimpse of a cgi augmented newport road i'm like thanks even though it's made yeah, on your on your doorstep yeah um right okay seed of chucky seed of chucky which is a direct sequel to Bride. Um, this was made in 2004. This time, Don Mancini directs as well as writing. So this one introduces a character, a new uh, puppet character called Shitface, a.k.a. Glenn or Glenda, um, which I thought was a nice little reference to Edward. Um, he's a Cockney puppet. He, she is a Cockney puppet who performs with a ventriloquist at Glastonbury, obviously. And he's plagued by nightmares of killing people. He has a habit of pissing his pants. He flees to LA. uh, And of course, he turns out to be the son of Tiffany and Chucky, the evil characters from the previous movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it gets very meta in this movie because Jennifer Tilly, obviously, she is the Tiffany character, but she also plays herself in this movie. She is the actor, Jennifer, Jennifer Tilly. And it is quite amusingly like self-deprecating because she play, just plays a total egomaniac whore, basically trying to boost her career by sleeping with people. Um, so I, although I do think that real world celebrity stuff is never that funny and it does always date quickly. So no, I've seen, I've seen oceans 12 as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah um i kind of feel this is where i started wondering whether all this would make it a better would be better suited to a tv series because it's quite episodic this one um and of course actually charles uh play is being made into a tv series now but anyway i think it's already released actually so anyway so basically glenn or glenda revives his parents um (laughs) 
neither of them can agree. <laughs> one of them wants him to be a boy, one of them wants him to be a girl, so they just say Glenn or Glenda. Um, so, but the thing is, Glenn is, he, he doesn't have their same taste for violence, he just wants a perfect family. And, um, but obviously, mum and dad keep on killing and they want to kill Jennifer Tilly next. Um, there's a cameo from John Waters in this movie, which probably tells you all you need to know. He gets his face melted. It's one of the few actual horror scenes in the movie because the dial now has swung totally towards comedy. Really puerile, really scatological. Um, it's it's very much the kind of horror movie that John Waters would actually make, to be fair. Uh, and it's really embracing the absurdity this time. Like, it's very juvenile. I think it just about gets away with it because of because of what's come before and because of its sense of irony and knowing excess. Uh, but it does kind of align with a lot of the gross-out comedy style of the early 2000s, I suppose. Um, like, there's a scene where Chucky, uh, like, is on his own and he, he masturbates, but he doesn't use a porn magazine. He uses, like, a copy of Fangoria. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't my favourite comedy period, the early 2000s, but... I think it's just by gets away with or it. Or horror it's, period, which is a real double indeed. whammy in this case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't even think of this as a horror movie now. Um, it is, it's weird. It's surprisingly progressive on the matter of gender dysphoria, though, because it's like the Glenn or Glenda sometimes feels like a girl, sometimes feels like a boy, and the mother is entirely accepting of it. Now, Don Mancini is known for sort of, quite subtly slotting in, well, not so subtly slotting in um, a lot of like LGBT kind of like uh, issues into his films to kind of normalise them. And But it seemed weirdly ahead of its time when it came to a depiction of a trans character, even if it is. I'm pretty sure that Glenn or Glenda is an Ed Wood film as well, isn't it, from the 50s? Yeah, I think, well, yeah. it, that's, it's a reference, definitely a reference to Ed Wood, but I think yeah. it was a documentary or something. Or did, oh, right, or did he okay. make it into a, a fiction film? Anyway, the only reason I know that is from Edward, like you say. Um, to be honest, it feels with Seed of Chucky like Don Mancini knows that this is his last roll of the dice cinematically mm. for this character anyway. So it's like he's just going all out and making it as tasteless and confrontational as possible. Um, and indeed, after this, all the films have gone straight to streaming, so... I guess he had a point, but yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's quite as endearing and funny as Bride of Chucky. It's much more juvenile, much more disgusting and gross and scatological, but it's definitely uh, a continuation of the previous film. It's definitely, he's just gone all out this time though. It's just a big, disgusting camp circus of a film. So a good double whammy then. I think yeah. I mean, if you're going to watch Bride, you might as well watch Seed as well. Just <laughs> yeah, just for the full flavour in your mouth. Is the next film the reboot? No, the next okay. film is a different reboot that Don Mancini did, which is yeah. again, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that he did it like three times basically. Um, can I squeeze in two films? Sure thing. That's cool. Um, I watched the A Team from 2010. 
um, by Joe Conahan, starring Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper, Quentin Jackson, Shelter Copley. Um, even our boy Patrick Wilson can't save this. I don't care about the plot because it's the A-team. I just wanted to say that when I watch this, never while watching a mainstream Hollywood action film have I ever got such a strong sense of people being embarrassed for being in something. The, the the delivery of the lines, the way that like when they, you know, I love it when a plan comes together, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. When they deliver this sort of key lines from the show, it, it, it's like it just goes in really close. And, you know, Liam Nielsen will say, I love when the plan comes together and they'll strike a match and the music will kick in. That is not enough to make a hundred and ten million dollar film, hundred and ten million dollar budget film. And the, it's like the film struggles to do such paper thin characters. And it, it just goes absolutely nowhere with the, this weirdly convoluted, boring plot. Um, and aside from the characters doing their bits and pieces, it has this habit of before a set piece kicks off, it'll have B.A. and and um, Murdoch just, you know, having a really poorly, badly scripted, amdram, unfunny comedic rehearsal. And then the scene will start. And, you know, we talked before about how when you watch a film and you think, yeah, that's the bit where they say, right, cut. OK, we're going to change a bit of this. And now you say this, you you know, we'll move on. We'll try this line instead. But it's all just moves ahead. And take, it's the first yeah. take club. Yeah. And um, it, it was yeah by the end of the film, I just thought. And the plans as well, the, the, like at the start. The start of the film um what's his name hannibal is chained to a chair being beaten to death by uh i think they're uh, two mexican guys i assume they're like parts of the cartel or whatever and one of them just says i just shoot him and get over with and he says no 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 don't use your gun use his gun and then he goes to shoot him with hannibal's gun hannibal's gun doesn't fire and then they leave him alone for some reason Mm. and then he pulls the firing pin out of his sleeve picks his cuffs with it puts it in the gun and then kills everyone and I thought, why why wouldn't they just shoot him, though, if these are like Mexican drug cartels? Why would they say use his gun? And then when his gun misfires, just like leave it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not an excellent plan. It's being beaten up and then completely lucking out. Well, they got side for a fag, isn't it? Yeah, so from the start, you don't think, oh, that's clever. There's no moment I thought the film was clever or pulled the rug from under my feet. It's just really, really obvious uh, stuff. It felt like, almost like um, the audience had those, like a dunce's cap with like a twirly bird thing. You know, those um, yeah. those multicolored caps that they stupid people wear in cartoons. Because all the plans, all the dialogue, it's low rent, low hanging fruit stuff. And it is an awful film that no one wanted to be in. And you can see it in their eyes. They are like, the look in their eyes is like that of Twitch streamers. They are desperate, desperate for the moment that will never come. Liam Neeson is surely miscast. Because. Well, he's, well it's George Peppard. <laughs> the thing is, he doesn't have. The thing that Liam Neeson doesn't have, he has gravitas, yes. Uh, he has kind of a sense of menace, I suppose. He doesn't have charm, I think, is the word you're looking for? Not really. He doesn't have a twinkle in his eye, does he, really? He has a kind of sadness in his eyes, but nothing... There's nothing, you, you know, when he kind of when he, he glances at another character or 
<laughs> I'll just say it if he glances at the camera, but um, <laughs> then um, you're not thinking, oh, he's got, there's a cheeky charm behind those eyes. You're just thinking, oh, he's seen things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Like he couldn't even play the character now in his actual sixties, you know, because he he, yeah. d- he doesn't he'd like now he's just got this hulking, sad frame. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's he, he is miscast and. And I just think that the the other the other characters are playing so closely to the original counterparts that like Shelter Copley and I I do like Shelter Copley as an actor and I think he's been in some good stuff, but it, it's like oh look how wacky he is and it just it's not funny enough it's not it feels like a film that shouldn't have been made really I'm I'm trying struggling to think of the ideal cast and the ideal script for this maybe a TV series not a movie not a movie because there's not enough there. Mm. Careful what you wish for, though. Maybe it has been rebooted and it just failed. I don't know. As a TV series, I mean. So. I am more likely to watch the entire VHS box set of Cagney and Lacey than this film again. And not I have not the VHS got a VHS box set of the 80s. <laughs> and I have not got a VCR. Um, I, was there another I, one you wanted to cover? Yes. I, I quickly talk about The Hitcher, not that one. The remake from 2007 with Sean Bean, right. which is the film I chose to watch for some reason Halloween. Um, this I my my worries were my worries were raised when Platinum Dunes came up at the start yes. of this, yes. and I thought oh, it's not going to be very good, is it? And um, it's not. And I, I, I I really do believe that. Um, I thought I would have seen this before, and I, I may well have. But uh, the original Hitcher is again like um like we spoke about Halloween last time. I watched the the original Hitcher with Rick Howe, I think it was ninety six or eighty seven, and see Thomas Howell, whose career is unbelievable now. But in the Hitcher, he was really good as a panicking teen, completely out of his depth. He was amazing in it. And then what what the remake does is it Sean Bean isn't threatening enough. His accent, I thought his accent would be ropey. I made a bet with Faye whether he'd be putting on American accent. He was, but his lines are so sparse he gets away with it. Um, it, it, it tries to, all it does is really lazily, in, and you can imagine like Michael Bay's cronies thinking this. In the original Hitcher, C. Thomas Howell is being chased um, down a highway, you know, in the, in L.A. whatever, um, in, in the in the desert by. Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer has charisma, he has gravitas, he has all the things that you want Rutger Hauer to have. At one point, he meets Jennifer Jason Leigh's character. Jennifer Jason Leigh's character gets at one point gets captured, torn apart by two trucks moving opposite directions. And that is what propels C. Thomas Howell from being a victim into a sort of predator and moves on the latter half of the film. This film follows that film beat for beat, just in a really diluted way. But halfway through the film, it's the man that gets torn in half and the woman takes on the, the predatory role. And, and I can imagine them clapping their hands with glee in the conference room like, ah, oh, that's going to blow. That's going to blow people's minds. And you're like that. It's a 90 minute film, though, isn't it? And that one scene of like, oh, I didn't expect that to happen isn't enough. And it, it's silly. And it, it's been a while since I watched one of these films where Every single decision the young couple makes is the wrong decision, like a really clearly, obviously wrong decision. And until they, there's a bit where they say, let's call, let's just call the police. And I thought, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. And then they call the police and they get put in prison and the, everyone gets slaughtered. 
and then more police turn up and they say, well, we've got to go because they won't believe us. And I thought, well, they will, won't they? Because although you'll initially look guilty, there's so much evidence to the contrary. And uh, uh, and um, Neil McDonough plays a really bizarre role in this, um, which has clearly been edited out of most of the film, where he turns up to the, the main pivotal role in the police station where everyone gets slaughtered off screen, as it does in both films, by, in this case, Sean Bean's character. And, and he draws a smiley face in blood on a window, right? And when Neil McDonough turns up and they say, right, the last two people they booked in are this couple that have apparently killed another cop on the highway. And they've obviously escaped and killed everyone here. And they've gone on the run. We saw them run off when we turned up. They look really guilty. And Neil McDonough points in the smiley face in blood on the window and says, who drew this then? And I thought, well, they they could have done that, couldn't they? You yeah. weren't there. Else, and yeah. to, com- to compound his belief that they're innocent... Later on, he opens two files and he sees that they're 20 years old and he slams the files shut and says, see, they're 20. They couldn't have done this. And what? it's not it's not elaborated on. And I thought, well, if that's the film you're willing to work at, that's the level you're willing to work at. I'm going to turn this off 10 minutes before the end, aren't I? And that's uh, what I'll I did. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely dreadful. Watch The Hitcher by all means. It's a fun film uh, with some with some cool moments in it and it's got Rakahara in it and Thomas see Thomas Howell's best this is awful it's probably the worst film of the week well we should do that why don't we have a worst film of the week well we do now don't we it mine's the history <laughs> we do and I've already mentioned mine um okay so where would we watch that if we were that way inclined you would watch that on Amazon Prime okay um okay uh so now we're going to move on to don mancini's next reimagining of chucky and charles play which is curse of chucky unfortunately not on a streaming service um but this was made in two, uh, 2013 and he directs again and this one is returning to the franchise's horror roots and it it was quite well received actually at the time and it's also the launch pad for the new tv series uh, which is interesting. And uh, so it, this one focuses on uh, a young woman named Nika, who's in a wheelchair in this large house. Nika is played, by the way, by Fiona Deriff, Brad's daughter, which is nice. Mm. Um, uh, How she got the job? So uh, her mother is very controlling, doesn't want to see her get hurt by anything. It's very, uh, very much wrapping her in cotton wool. Um they receive a Chucky doll by mail, and when the mother mysteriously dies, um, a bunch of friends and family come to support Nika. Uh, now, Nika's sister encourages Nika to sell up and move into assisted living in quite a patronising way. But before anything can happen, anyway, Chucky intends to slaughter everyone in the house, which also includes the local priest, um, a hot nanny, plus Nika's niece. So uh, Chucky slash Charles's motivation this time around is personal. It's a connection with Nika's mother and by extension, the whole family and a desire for revenge. Uh, And it ties quite neatly into the original film. There's still some humour, but it's much slyer and more subtle and character based. It's it's so different to Seed of Chucky, the previous film. So different in tone. like, but it's uh, yeah. So it's a very character-based. Like, uh, there's this whole, this whole kind of 
underlying conflict between Nika and her sister. Um, and uh, the, the sister is very kind of snobbish and and selfish um, and also quite patronising. But um, anyway, there's the scary parts are more subtle too. Um, like, for example, it will have like quite nice little subtle scares like there's a shot of Chucky's eyes at one point and you just see the pupils dilate and that's pretty cool it, the the palette is more muted than previous couple of movies the lighting's more atmospheric it's not not a bright film um there's a really 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 cool opening uh, not opening scene but early scene where all these people are gathered for dinner and we know that Chucky has put rat poison in one of the bowls but we don't know which bowl it is so it has this kind of dinner party scene where we're kind of like where Don Mancini is really teasing us about who has the mouthful sort of thing of deadly food so someone will like cough but actually they're just the food's gone down the wrong way or whatever so it's constantly teasing us it's a really cool scene um and yeah Mancini he, he loves a bit of De Palma there's there's like a scene where the camera focuses on this growing pool of blood and we gradually see someone's reaction in the reflection and stuff like that. So nice little moments like that. It's a very classic haunted house type horror. And and really, it's it's the first pure horror movie in the entire series. I'd say it's got good characterization. Okay. It's got good tension. It's got some really nasty twists and some decent kills. And I think it's the best since the original. Possibly the best overall, to be honest. Really, Chucky. Yeah. Oh, I didn't expect that. And this this was Don Mancini's last, like, like you say, this is the reboot, and then there's another reboot. This was Don Mancini reimagining it yet again in 2013. He would then go on to do one more, which uh, talk about next. Okay, I'll I'll be, I'll be swift because I know we've only got about 20 uh, 25 minutes left before we go into the next two hour session um and this i watched um blitz which is a 2011 um thriller film directed by elliot lester starring jason statham and paddy considine aiden gillen and a david morrissey who i didn't recognize i um i was in the i watched about three or four jason statham films on the trot um i probably won't get a chance to go through them all today but i just wanted to say with this i watched jason statham films for, for you know the martial arts and the kind of one-liners and just his his presence. That's why I watch any of his films. I care about nothing else. And I've seen this before two or three times. And every time I forget how absolutely visceral and miserable and grey it is. It's set in southeast London. And um, the, the blitz in question is Aidan Gillen's character who is going around just killing cops. And Paddy Considine and Jason Statham were together. Paddy Considine is a gay policeman reviled by the force because of his homosexuality. And Jason Statham is just a burned out, just someone who just really doesn't play exactly by the police rule book for the Metropolitan Police. And I was watching it and I thought there is not a single person in this film, even as a sub character. There's no one who has walked past the camera in any scene who isn't persecuted, hated vilified downtrodden it, it, it's like i thought god this really is a miserable film i only have a seven month year old son and i watch a lot of horror films and action films and I'm, i've got him bouncing on my knee he hasn't got a clue what's going on 
The scene in this film where Aidan Gillen smashes Mark Rylance's face to milkshake mush with a hammer and then vomits on his remains at what he's done is the one moment in my child's eyes that I put my hand over his face and thought, yeah, you don't need to see that. And I wish it's so weird to see Mark Rylance in that uh, in that role. Um, it's a really good film, but it, it's it's surprisingly hard going just in terms of i can imagine if you felt a bit down you'd think you know this is this is miserable stuff um i feel like it's a bit of a hidden gem to be honest because it's so it's so downtrodden for what is effectively just a you know a straight like a dark dramas um but yeah, it's it's definitely worth a goosey if you fancy something. And it's on, I believe it was on Amazon Prime. And then it's Blitz. Mm. Can I quickly squeeze in another one? Yeah, sure. If oh, that, that sounds is... interesting, Blitz. I, I'll have to check that out. I just have you not seen it? Was... I just assumed everyone had seen it because I, I assumed everyone likes Jason Statham as much as I do. Yeah, I um, think the, the part that put me off was that it wasn't going to be a typical Jason Statham film. And I oh, understandably so. Yeah, it's but you think about it, you've got Mark Rylance, Jason Statham, Paddy Constant, Aiden Gill, and David Marcy. These are these these are good the good guys. Yeah. Um uh, what should I do next quickly? Yeah, I'll do this one just because it's it's a, it's a big film and I don't often watch them. I know I like this more than you. I watched Marvel's Black Widow mm. and um a bit of a two minute because I know we're running out of time, but I, I actually like this a lot more than I thought. I I'm familiar with the character just from um, peripherally on other in other Marvel films. As people who listen to this podcast will know, I do not follow the Marvel mythology. And I'm a fan of things like Venom and Ant-Man that it sort of exists, uh, again, on the periphery of it. Because it feels like little one-shots into each character and it doesn't just rely on this overarching tedious theme um, where it balances loads and loads, it keeps loads of plate spinning of different characters. Um, th- this was on the right side of that for me, so it's um, I haven't got any information up in front of me. I didn't expect to get this far in my films, to be honest. Um, this is Scarlett Johansson, and she is realizes that the widows, the Russian widows, obviously Ray Winstone, the head Russian, why wouldn't he be, um, are being. Uh, given mind-altering drugs to do these things and she reconnects with her sister and her fake family Rachel Weiss is her mother and David Harbour is her father who also known as I think he's they call him the crimson I think it's the red guardian he's known as he's imprisoned in a Russian prison and um, it, it, things explode that are bigger than a shed but as big as the film is it feels separate from the Marvel mythology and yeah. I, I, I've not seen because because I didn't watch Stranger Things. David Harbour is the guy from Stranger Things, isn't he? Yes. Yes. I, I really like his screen presence. I like his kind of yeah. like schlubbish, shl- living off his glory days sort of character. And I really enjoyed how he's just like, although they were just a fictitious family put together for this like um, botched mission in Chicago like thirty years ago when they were kids, that. He's determined to kind of get them going and like just talk about how amazing it was in the 80s when he was riding high and how he could beat Captain America. And I found that the the familial uh, drama of it was actually enough to keep me engaged up until the end. As usual, as 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 you know, the set pieces kicked in, I sort of lost interest. But I think that with David Harbour, um, the, the, what's the, the 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 younger sister's name? You'll know her name. She was in Midsummer as well. Yeah. Um, 
it all it all kept me engaged and i would say it's one of the for me it's an upper tier marvel film i i did enjoy i did enjoy the, the familiar side of it and i did generally laugh out loud sometimes at david harbour which does not happen usually in these movies well he's the best thing about stranger things as well to be fair um i might have to finish watching it then because right, i got bored halfway through but maybe bored or tired it's difficult to know these days <laughs> i think you should you should finish it i mean the thing is the latter half is is no i wouldn't say it's the worst half because there's there's a scene where they're in a in a cabin david harbour starts singing and there are some nice moments some funny yeah moments. i need to see more david harbour that's really what uh, it's down to um yeah okay uh, i maybe i will finish watching that then um okay and that's obviously on disney plus yes it is Cult of Chucky is the final film that Don Mancini was involved in, and he directs it again. 2017. This one reintroduces Andy, and who's now 40 odd. He's a loner who hangs out with the living, living disembodied head of Chucky. Right. <laughs> Nika. Uh, the girl from the last film. She's in a mental hospital now. This is sort of Gattaca-style bleached white thing uh, facility. And after having been blamed for all the deaths in the previous movie, the asylum setting is it's a good way of perpetuating the whole thing about authorities not believing, you know, believing the victims and that. Um, she meets a nice guy who believes in her and a romance ensues, except he has multiple personalities. Um now, Tiffany turns up, as in Jennifer Tilly. Um, now, she's, she's become Nika's niece's legal guardian, and she brings another Chucky doll as a gift. Um, <laughs> so anyway, in group therapy, this doctor whips out a Chucky doll to help with the healing process. And this triggers some quite amusing, interesting character conflicts like some because they're all pretty mad in there some see it as a token of a killer another a character treats the doll like a real baby and stuff like that so it throws in some pretty fresh ideas um like there's a patient who completely believes that chucky is the killer or there's this guilt-ridden mother who's actively inviting death um in any way possible including death by doll um or there's the doctor who actively seeks to manipulate the patient's sanity. And it, it generally goes quite bonkers in the final third. And there's all this ambiguity about characters' guilt and their motivations and how much of it's real. Um, so it's all bound up with their kind of madness of this place. And again, uh, with this and um, Curse of Chucky, Mancini throws in some nice LGBT nods like like there's this male nurse who just like mentions he has a husband for example or there's or there's these female lovers and that he doesn't make it a thing that's the that's what's nice about it it's just in there so once again yeah there's a it's just a new visual style yet again it's all the all the like the previous film Curse of Chucky that was all very like dark gloomy haunted house thing this is very this is very like bright bleached white all the interiors of clothing are just stark black and white so the occasional gray um so of course which makes it interesting when chucky's on the screen because he 
totally stands out as like this little colorful character with garish <laughs> colors and yeah and it's it's a nice uh follow-up to curse of chucky it's i, I it goes a it it's a bit less kind of um classical horror and it, it is going into bonkers territory again to an extent but i think this has got a better balance than the very silly bride of chucky and seed of chucky See, yeah, it never goes that chucky. silly this is just this is just completely irreverent and quite mad so yeah i think this goes very nicely with curse of chucky and yeah i think overall if you're going to look at the mancini franchise part of all this i think if i was going to recommend them i would say you could watch the original child's play maybe two and then i would jump to curse and cult i just don't i think bride and seed they're just a bit too crass and dated maybe uh they, they were released at that time mm, weren't they it was very so, much that time wasn't it okay not, like you say not the best time for comedy and not the best time for horror and that these are comedy horrors. What yeah. would what would um, what's Don Mancini up to these days before we move I on from him? I guess he's working on the TV series. I uh, I'm assuming he's intrinsically involved with that because the TV series follows the Nika storyline. Story so it's it's coming off it's coming off Curse and Cult. Um, I I do you know I've got so many absolute mid ranges I had as backups here. That I'm willing to just wrap up with you talking about the the final Chucky film if that's cool. Yeah, uh, I can talk. About it. This was this was an interesting one because I knew that I would see this film differently. This is Child's Play made in 2019, and mm-hmm. uh, I watched this on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. And so it's made in 2019, and I remember watching it at the time in the cinema, in fact, and thinking, oh, that's pretty good. I knew, though, that having watched all of the franchise up to this point and then watching this remake, that I would have a different experience. I'd either think, oh, yeah, it's just much better than the others, or I'd be like, ah, right, I've kind of become a bit of a fan now, and this is not what I'm looking for. You know, unfortunately, it was a bit of the latter. It's really gone down in my estimation, this movie. Um, So... In this, the toy is called a buddy, and it's a Bluetooth-enabled companion which controls all kind of stuff in your home. So it's a natural way of bringing the series up to date. And there's also this sweatshop prologue, um, which kind of points to the na- modern nature of production as well. Um, now, this is a remake, so we go back to Andy. He's a slightly older, sharper and more streetwise kid in this one. His mum is weirdly close, much closer in age to she had a very productive sweet 16, as she puts it. Um, possibly more depressing is that the mum is this oddly needy, pandering friend to her own child. Like the way that his friends just going kind to of blunder into the house, swearing and eating their food. And she just has no you know, authoritarianism whatsoever, or the way that she's not even interested in why Andy isn't attending school, for example, or when 
she her boyfriend dies and she just starts drinking and it's up to her son to comfort her it's a really odd character and it doesn't seem relevant to anything it's just like uh it's just a bit of a depressingly bad parent it's odd anyway i wouldn't mind if the mother's negligence was relevant to the film but it's not she's just meant to be a cool mum, i think but she's really not cool at all anyway so she gets hold of this cursed doll via a return at the store where she works and it's a malfunctioning doll and uh, his name is chucky and it befriends andy and it becomes aggressively protective over him um now the film doesn't dare acknowledge actual childhood like andy and his friends are far too self-aware and frankly they're too old really for all that so they're constantly referencing how creepy chucky is and they're just using it for their own shenanigans now for me this setup removes a key ingredient from the original film which is this horrible idea of childish innocence being corrupted and inverted that's kind of out the window when you've got this uh it also means that chucky is positioned as a a misguided guardian figure to andy which is completely different from the homicidal maniac who takes joy in elaborate suffering um so that is out the window as well it also means that chucky doesn't really have a personality because of course he is uh, an ai he's not the disembodied soul of a serial killer is, is he still voiced by brad deriff no he's voiced by mark hamill which is oh, that, 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 that's fine. yeah yeah so yeah it loses a key part of his relationship with others because um because of course he's essentially not he's not this uh grotesque um wisecracking serial killer uh, and i suppose that it does mean we're spared a few tiresome one-liners but it's just a pity that because it's Mark Hamill, obviously he has loads of charisma, but he's not really able to show it. Um, so the first death in the original movie is a best friend and babysitter, right? I.e. it's someone we don't want to die. OK, so that's mm-hmm. shocking. And that and there's a reason why they decided to do that, because they were taking someone who was a key character, someone who's nice, someone we don't want to die killing them and it, it shocks us it, it instantly raises the stakes in this one the first death is this grouchy abusive adulterer boyfriend so it's not shocking and it's not unwanted and then the second victim is this sniveling greedy perverted voyeur who intends to make money on ebay from chucky so you can see where it's going it's like okay yeah. these these this is the same problem we've had before where it's like uh from charles play three specifically where it's like setting up the victims as the bad people so it's like we've got no there's no tension there because we want them to die anyway anyway yeah there's this really drippy sentimental score it's just really treacly uh not in an ironic way but just genuinely treacly uh it's it's close in tone i suppose to something like stranger things where it's got similar kind of lighting similar humor this squad of kids all this um 
I, I personally don't think this was made for fans of the original Chucky series and all its incarnations. I think it's made for people who are aware of the iconography of Chucky, of Charles Play, but aren't willing to go back to a 1988 entry point, which is fine. I understand that because it's dated, but it's just a pity because they're missing out on a really, really quite weird and inventive and varied series of films. Uh, and all it takes is just to watch the original and then, you know, just give the other Mancini films a go. Just skip three. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I didn't like this second time around because I just thought this is a very diluted version of the original with none of the kind of arch humour that um, Don Mancini brought to it. His, his loss is noticeable. Is it, is, is it like, um, is it a bit platinum dunesy where they say, we'll just modernise it and now it's Bluetooth and then it's like that's enough to sustain a film and it's not? Yeah, kind of, yeah, a little bit. I'd, I'd say it's it's a film that's crafted with care i can see it's not it's not badly made or anything it's just uh i don't know this i really it's really starting to bother me these these reboot slash sequel things which um are kind of acting i suppose this is a bit different because it is genuinely a reboot is not acknowledging the previous ones so it's not it's not that have your cake and eat it thing that you get with like stuff like Candyman. um but yeah it's like it's like it's, it's a well-made product but missing something of the soul of the original which is quite apt because of course in this there is no soul in chucky that's the whole point but that bit is lacking because that, that's where the the grotesque comedy element comes from and like the the satirical element and i just think well don mancini created three versions of this franchise and did pretty well with all of them uh, and then this one comes along and it's a bit just a bit watered down really well so you're saying the first one, the second yes. one, uh, cult, and there's another one. Curse. So curse. first one, second one, then you could quite easily jump to curse and cult. I think everything else has got too many problems. It's, really. it's extraneous. Yes, I would yeah. say so. Okay. No, that that's fine. I I think I think I know that Faye likes these films. Um, we should do this for Children of the Corn. What well, one to forty is okay, but fifty to seventy six really loses its luster a little bit. Um, mm. yeah. So it's it's time for well, obviously the arc, the new Arkansas and film of the week. Mm. So well, actually, the, the worst film of the week for me was a, a, a new feature was was the Hitcher because. I think I slightly frowned throughout that entire film and thought, what am I watching? Um, and my film of the week, I, obviously I, I would probably choose something like um, either The Last Crusade or probably Last Crusade over Raiders. But that's 
probably people have said that's their favorite film before so to go a little bit and, I, and especially because you hadn't seen it and i was surprised by that i'd say blitz okay because it, it is it's a nasty film and it's uh it almost feels like a bit of a video nasty in in how relentless it is so yeah i would say blitz is my film of the week and uh the hitcher not that one the 27 remake is the worst film of the week Charles play three is the worst film of the week by a million miles uh i would say if, um of the rest of the series i think like curse was the most surprising to me because like i said before the fact that don mancini essentially created this franchise in the 80s reinvented it with bride of chucky and then reinvented again uh what 25 years after the original movie with a completely different type of film very impressive so curse of chucky would be best for me i'm gonna have to read about don mancini he seems like an interesting guy yeah um Right, I didn't even get to talk about Electric Boogaloo, the story of canon films, or Legendary, the Lincoln Lawyer, or Gangster Squad, or American Gangster, or LA Confidential. But I will put to you that the next Arkansas, to make it hopefully 4-3 to the audience, mm-hmm. you have to get from Jennifer Tilly to John Hurd. Not Hurt, Hurd. Oh my goodness. I don't even know whether John Hurd has got... He's, he's got an A in his name, isn't he? Yes. Okay. No problem. In his first name, bizarrely. Join. 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 Give me that coffee. <laughs> Pass me my passport. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. The story's been a bit delayed. They'll be more regular from now on. Um, and yeah, yeah it's we'll do the next this... one in April 2022. <laughs> I just to say that yeah, I've got a lot to catch up on, and I'm clearly going to watch more films. But I, I love you. May your light shine forever through the mind of the universe, Rupert. Okay, bye.